Hi, I'm Sergeant Vucetic and this is Race and Racism. Today's lecture is simply entitled Canada. Most of you remember the year 2017 because Canada marked the sesquicentennial year of its existence and you must have been here in Ottawa or around Ottawa. Many, if not most of you, embraced the official and officious hashtag Canada150 iconography with, with some pleasure and pride. Uh, but also many, if not most of you, countered this iconography with hashtag Colonial150, a set of symbols that express so-called our common experience from the perspective of indigenous people in Canada. What's interesting about 2017 is that the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau did the same thing. Uh, it showed that it was possible to mark both Canada 150 and Colonial 150, that is to exalt Canada's peace, order and good government, while also lamenting the sordid history and enduring legacy of colonialism. I'm not saying that this was successful, or certainly not in the eyes of everyone involved, but an attempt was made. And this is new, 40 or even 20 years ago, uh, 20 years earlier, uh, those who spoke on behalf of Canada and Canadians at occasions such as these were neither able nor willing to recognize that indigenous polities existed on, on, the, on the Turtle Island long, long before Confederation, much less to acknowledge uh, the country's identity as a settler colony. So crucially, the Trudeau government uh, argued at the time, before that time and since that time, that the country's most pressing task, right alongside efforts to mitigate climate change, is a new nation-to-nation -nation relationship. And this was an essential, essential component of fostering reconciliation with indigenous uh, peoples. And this discourse of reconciliation has some traction among Canadians, as you can see from the CBC News item on, on, on a public opinion poll from 2019. And, and this is the language you use constantly. This language builds on a host of key court rulings, negotiation processes, commission work, such as recently uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its famous 94 calls to action. And I'm assuming most of you in this program have clicked on that website, read at least some of those calls to action. There's something else, and this relates to the second reading on the list, uh, and this is the 2007 UN Declaration on the Rights of uh, Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP, or UNDRIP sometimes as it's called, an international document that specifies both individual and collective rights of Indigenous peoples, including rights to equality, self-determination, cultural autonomy, financial compensation for confiscated lands, and to freely consent to decisions that impact them, the building of pipelines on indigenous lands, for example. So this is, this is where Sherry Lightfoot uh, piece comes in. Uh, she gives a story of declaration and its transformational potential for Canadian politics. Should say that Lightfoot is the professor uh, uh, at the First Nations and Indigenous Studies and also the Department of Political Science at UBC. She's herself Anishinaabe, a citizen of the Lake Superior Band of Ojibwe. Um, and it was on my invitation that she came to the University of Ottawa to talk about uh, this transformation in 2017. This was an interesting year, not only because it was uh, the sesquicentennial, but also because it was when the Trudeau government announced, surprisingly perhaps, that it would support Bill C-262, which was a piece of legislation that seeks to harmonize or sought to harmonize 
um, UNDRIP with Canadian laws. This is a huge deal. And it was a new development in the House of Commons, considering that none of the five or six previous versions of, of this bill, and all of them were sponsored by uh, this NDP MP, uh, Romeo Saganash, made it to the second reading, right? So Bill, in the end, Bill 262 died uh, in the Senate in June 2019 after the delaying tactics of a handful of conservative senators uh, prevented it to coming to a final vote. But... The point is then, two, late, two years later, British Columbia inter, introduced and passed Bill 41, a groundbreaking provincial legislation to implement global standards for upholding the rights of indigenous peoples. The, these rights are set out in the UNDRIP, or UNDRIP. And with this, uh, BC became the first government in Canada, and in fact, anywhere in the Commonwealth or English-speaking uh, common law world, to establish a legislative framework for putting the Declaration of Human Rights Standards into concrete practice. Uh, it was an important step towards reconciliation, defined any way you, you wanted, uh, but it was a huge step, an important and huge step. And it's uh, basically set an example for the rest of Canada, and not just for the rest of Canada, but for the rest of the world uh, as well. So this directly built on this federal bill, uh, C-262, which died uh, in, in 2017. Um, so what she does in, in, in this short piece is say, well, you know, we have to pay attention uh, to the unglobal or global uh, repercussions of, of these new uh, legislative moves. The New Zealand government, uh, so for example, she, she talks about the collaborative development of a new national action plan uh, that's underway in New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand government, I, I might have mentioned uh, the New Zealand-Canada comparisons in, in this class before, but essentially they're way ahead uh, when it comes to majority settler, uh, minority, indigenous uh, population relations. So the New Zealand government is, is working with the Maori people uh, to identify, Maoris are the indigenous people of New Zealand, to identify key reforms necessary in their human, uh, in their human uh, and humanitarian, uh, sorry, in their national laws and policies, uh, to co-develop uh, a, a national action plan. And part of this process uh, is that Human Rights Commission of New Zealand and Maori groups co-invited members of the UN expert mechanisms on the rights of indigenous peoples to visit and provide advice. So this is huge. Essentially, you're inviting you know folks from abroad to tell you what to do with respect to uh, implementing and harmonizing your laws with, uh, with this UN declaration. Um, and if you're interested in exploring this, I mean, this entire session, I guess, is of interest to those of you who are interested uh, in, in law and want to be lawyers. Um, so there's a lot of important work being done on Canada and New Zealand uh, uh, entanglements, shall we say, uh, by this uh, Guelph University uh, professor of political science, David McDonald, who's published uh, a lot on, on what he calls uh, are the Kiwi lessons for Canada. So folks like Light, Lightfoot and, and McDonald, in fact, they collaborate on work on, on various projects. Uh, they're clear. The action plan developed in BC must adapt to the specific needs of indigenous peoples in the province. But at the same time, it's important to remain engaged with the ongoing processes of, of how the declaration is interpreted and applied globally. And, and in this process, we see Canada redefining itself as well as uh, the world redefining itself. Um, so this 
this is uh, one story that, that, you know, we can react to and talk about today because next time we celebrate, I don't know, a big anniversary of Canada, so 50 years from now, uh, Canada will look very different. And part of that reason will have to do with this process that began essentially 2017, 18, uh, 19, right? Uh, well, I mean, obviously it has a, it has a, it has a prehistory here, but but you know these if if lightfoot is right these are momentous historical moves so now let's move on to another less happy story it deals with the g word why it matters whether we call canada's action towards indigenous people a genocide and there and there you have uh one reading by an international lawyer again this session is for, for budding lawyers among you. So in this story, we're going to go back to 2019 and the debates about the national inquiry into, into missing and mur uh, murdered indigenous women and girls, which concluded uh, in June uh, that year. An inquiry was criticized at the time, still is criticized, and criticisms came not least from the family of victims who, who said uh, that the inquiry... Uh, showed a lack of empathy compounded by endless staff turner, turnover, glacial pace of evidence gathering, and a general lack of transparency. In fact, September that year, uh, CBC reported that inquiry also made some very basic factual errors, and I won't go into that, but you can, you can uh, find out more about it. Uh, there were other criticisms such as that, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the inquiry did not look at uh, uh, children in foster care, half of which in Canada are Aboriginal, even though uh, even though only seven percent of all Canadian children are Aboriginal, or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, you could argue that anti-colonial anti and critical race framework can help us understand these uh, this striking overrepresentation. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, this basically has everything to do with the historical contingencies of race, class, and gender divisions uh, when you think about Canada as a settler state, meaning that people uh, came uh, here from Europe and took over lands inhabited by indigenous peoples. So, um, uh, the parallel between the residential schools of the past and the foster care system of today uh, was not addressed uh, in the inquiry, and this is something that um, that 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 constituted uh, an aspect of criticism of uh, of the inquiry in 2019. Um, now, the big point here is that it was the prime minister, so Justin Trudeau, accepted that Canada committed genocide uh, under his watch. He said, quote, we accept the findings that this was genocide and we will move forward to end this ongoing national tragedy. So this is not even uh, what happened in the past. It's happening now, right? Colonialism uh, is a structure, not an event. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's killing people today. Um, so this was huge, right? This is coming. So basically we had an election campaign, let's not, not forget that, in which a head of government uh, admitted uh, at the very least to failing to prevent genocide. This is itself a breach of international law, uh, which, you know, essentially put Trudeau and his government and his country in the same league, uh, league as some, some really horrible places. And a lot of perfectly mainstream jurists and commentators said that they agreed with this. And if you read the report, the legal analysis concedes there is little precedent in international law for situations where the state is the perpetrator of genocide through structural violence, such as colonialism. But it very much implicates Canada in genocide. It says, quote, in breach of its international, Canada is in breach of its international obligations 
triggering uh, its responsibility under international law, right? And now the report was released, I guess, in the first or second week, or first week, I think June 3rd, uh, 2019, uh, the piece I assigned by Paya Makalan uh, is two weeks, was published two weeks later in Open Canada. Uh, he's a professor of international law at McGill University, a former UN prosecutor at The Hague. I think he was the first uh, advisor to the uh, UN um, um, uh, Tribunal for, uh, for, for former Yugoslavia, so that's how I encountered his work, but he's also much in demand in Canada when it comes to uh, international law matters. I think in 2017, he was the CBC Massey lecturer, so very popular man. Um, and he introduces you to, the, um, to this dance between legal and sociological definitions of genocide. Uh, it's a really good piece. Uh, you answers most of your questions that you've, you might have had uh, with respect uh, to genocide. And, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, and, and basically it says, uh, let's be careful with this obsession um, with conceptual terminology um, and you, you, because it privileges abstractions over subjective experiences and you know we end up talking about the Polish journalist Rafael Lemkin who came up with the term uh, with the term genocide instead of actually talking about indig indigenous uh, our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, so it substitutes the intimate vernacular with the uh, with, a, with essentially a foreign abstract vocabulary. Um, and he proposes something else. He says, well, there are good reasons why the Jewish people embrace the Hebrew word Shoah, meaning catastrophe, uh, for the Holocaust. The Armenians adopted Aged, also meaning catastrophe. Ukrainian, Ukrainians have Holodomor, death by hunger, and Rwandans devised Itzim Baboko, ethnic extermination. Um, so each group, there are good reasons why each group insists on calling their genocide, not genocide, the, the kind of Latin-rooted European word, but they come up with their own words. And see, he says, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's the time um, to have an authentic uh, term, uh, a word among the indigenous languages that could be adopted uh, with a specific etymology and linguistic context to uh, from which non-indigenous Canadians uh, could, could learn. Maybe this would be a better way. I don't know what you think of that. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Uh, it comes at the end of his piece. Uh, but note that uh, these, uh, you know, the, the, the four words, so Shoah, Aged, Holodomor, and Itzimbabwoko are the ones that Canada officially uh, recognizes as genocide. And there's another one, Srebrenica, which is the Bosnian genocide. I could talk to you about that one. For a very long time, uh, all of these are all of those are well represented. If you go to the uh, you know, Human Rights Museum, uh, uh, you will you will you will talk about these five, and then there'll be you know a discussion of how this relates uh, to the genocide in Canada. Uh, so that was uh, uh, that, that's an important point, um, uh, and and you know I guess the, the general uh, take home point is that just because the report is concerned specifically with the UN uh, convention, I'm talking about the National Inquiry Report, does not mean that settlers should not pay attention to, uh, to what indigenous peoples are saying. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, and, it is, and it is a problem that the Trudeau government and those who voted for him or against them were able to shrug this accusation away uh, of genocide may well be evidence of Canada's ongoing apathy or even antipathy 
uh, towards indigenous people, which would be, which is a horrible thought on which to uh, uh, end, end the second story. Um, this leads me to um, another set of criticisms that the 2019 uh, inquiry received, which was that, uh, or reactions, I should say. Uh, others argued that, well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's still far more useful to talk about historical events uh, here and, you know, talk about them in terms of cultural genocide. And this brings us back to the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of 2015, which um, uh, famously called the residential school system cultural genocide. So you could ask, well, why did they call it, I often wonder, why did they call it cultural genocide? Why didn't they follow, let's say, the Australian Human Rights Commission in 1997, which basically said that, you know, the equivalent system in Australia was just genocide. Um, so there could be several reasons why that is the case. Uh, I guess I could, I could, I try to identify five of them. This is building on, on, on the work by Lightfoot and McDonald and others uh, who studied this and who worked with the TRC. So first, uh, TRC could have declared the First Nation experience to be genocide, even if it, it, could, it did not have the mandate to do this. It was, uh, it was not established as a legal tribunal with the power to prosecute grant amnesties or subpoena witnesses. Uh, it, could, it could hold no formal hearings, nor act as a public inquiry, nor conduct a legal process. Um, so, uh, simply put, declaring genocide under international law would have exceeded the mandate, right? So that's a, that's a simple reason, uh, and there are good reasons why these commissions inquiries are, are set up in the way they are. Second, finding the state guilty of genocide in the Indian residential school system uh, would be extremely difficult. Um, court cases alleging genocide have been struck down, first because the crimes in question took place uh, long before the convention uh, was signed, so keep that in mind, the historicity of the concept. Uh, and forcibly transferring children is not considered genocide in the Canadian Criminal Code, which recognizes uh, only some elements of the United Nations Genocide Con Convention. Uh, so that's, that was uh, perhaps the second reason why, why we ended up with cultural genocide as opposed to genocide. Third, finding uh, of genocide might not help the target to population achieve healing and compensation or resolution uh, of broken treaties. Um, so even when an international court does recognize genocide, as in Rwanda and, and, and former Yugoslavia, this does not, does not translate into compensation by perpetrators or to victims. Tutsis received nothing from their Hutu oppressors. And, and when Bosnia sued Serbia for genocide in the International Court of Justice, they failed. Um, so, um, yeah, good luck trying to find some uh, some some healing, compensation, reconciliation, uh, etc. through through these legal processes. Uh, fourth, uh, there's been need, and this is related. There's always a need to balance truth and reconciliation. That's why the commission had the, the dual title. Um, uh, and arguably, this was achieved. This balance was achieved in in a couple of ways. First, in promoting the academic term cultural genocide, they virtually eliminated. Uh, the possibility of a large-scale denialist movement, which is what happens with uh, with uh, in, in any genocide case. I mean, 
this year, uh, especially if, if you look at Srebrenica in Bosnia, I mean, the, 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 instead of commemorating uh, survivors, victims, everyone who was paying attention to the event, they, they spent their time fighting denialism. Um, so this did not happen in Kanda, which is a success, invoking uh, genocide, uh, would have opened up commission to attack from right-wing activists, uh, lawyers, etc. Uh, and the term seems to have been adopted by survivors, educators, community leaders, uh, and even Supreme Court justices. So that you can see this as a success. Second, cultural genocide does not distract too much attention uh, from the 94 recommendations, uh, which many people find more important. Uh, the focus, once again, like... Uh, um, uh, like like the uh, 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 Akalan reading says, should be uh, on the implementation of the UN Declaration of the Rights uh, of Indigenous Peoples, um, and and not not on uh, you know not on, on on these illegal debates. So uh, fifth reason, um, the TRC has not said this wasn't genocide, which is really interesting. Same goes for the 2017, sorry, 2019 National Inquiry uh, on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Nothing in, in, in either report um, says there was no genocide, uh, you know, historically speaking. So there's considerable scope for survivors, community leaders, and educators to articulate how the United Nations uh, Genocide Convention reflects uh, Canadian history in the schools. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, this is not the final word. In other words, memory and history will continue to flow. Our understanding of the system at the time uh, will grow and change. As I said, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to be talking about Canadian history in, 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 in perhaps very radically different ways. Um, and this is the, you know, you can think of it as the beginning of a momentous process of fully discovering who we are, what Canada uh, really means. Um, so, this uh, brings me to uh, an, an aspect of Canada we call Canadian foreign policy, and this is a piece by Hayden King, an Anishinaabe writer and educator who works at Ryerson University. He's also the head uh, of the Yellowhead Institute. Uh, the Yellowhead Institute, I think last year, 2019, published uh, the Red Report, which you can read, which discusses some of these issues in great detail. And, it, you know, the, his argument is that Canadian foreign policy, when we think about it, it and, and study it, and, you know, many of you do and will, and maybe will be, you know, working in the Canadian foreign policy community, well, it's all wrong because we assume, assume that there's such a thing as the national interest. This is correct only in as much as we accept that the primary national interest of this policy called Canada is to normalize and affirm uh, settler colonialism. Um, and so uh, he says, well, you know, we better pay attention to the fact that there's a, an alternative tradition to all of this. Uh, so he, he says uh, against the do doctrine of um, discovery that defined, you know, the, the, that was defined by the papal bull of 1493 that divided the, the Americas into uh, Spanish and Portuguese spheres of influence or spheres of, of massive land theft or the royal proclamation of 1764 that did the same, uh, you know, for the Anglo-French world. Uh, we, ha we also have uh, indigenous uh, traditions, uh, and you know, he he talks about the 
uh, two-row wampum treaty, one of the earliest diplomatic accords between indigenous peoples and settlers. This was created uh, um, in the you know early 1600s when the first waves of settlers were arriving in uh, Kanyankehaha. Kanyankehaha territory, the eastern uh, portion of Hudenoshani lands, uh, reflecting uh, the the practice. So, so I should say this: um, uh, when we talk about the, uh, I don't know how much how much you 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 know uh, about this, but Hudenoshani uh, are they they consist. Uh, this, this is a federation, right? Um, you have um, you uh, you have the Mohawks. Uh, so from you, know, you look at the uh, at, at some of the iconography uh, that that relates to what are now annual uh, gatherings of uh, a five hundred year old government. Uh, it's like a federation. Uh, known as the Haudenosaunee Great Law of Peace, uh, and it, it happens, I think, every year um, in a brown longhouse oriented east to west along Route 207 in Kanawaki Mohawk community, which is uh, home to more than 8,000 people across the St. Lawrence River in Montreal. And, 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 and there you have um, uh, there, there you have recognition of of a of a white uh, pine tree at the at the center, which symbolizes this treaty with rows of white and two white squares on each side. So so the, there is a um, uh, there is the Mohawks, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, Onondaga nations, um, and then I think the Six Nations was adopted by this. Uh, Confederation, uh, sometimes in the 18th century, uh, Tuscarora, um, and and they all became essentially a government. So you know, five, you know, half a millennium old government in North America that we don't talk about. Uh, well, um, so so the it was the Mohawks uh, among uh, Hurunoshani who entered into an agreement uh, with the settlers uh, in the in, in the 1600s. And um, and this breaded belt, known today as the two row wampum, uh, was the first uh, was the first diplomatic agreement uh, that recognized mutual autonomy and non interference on the Turtle Island on this continent, and and it, it rested on the acceptance of distinct political communities highlighted. Uh, by by these two uh, rows, right, uh, and they're highlighting different ways of life, um, which, based on indigenous pol- political organization at the time, meant non so so they meant political communities, polities. Uh, so King also talks about another indigenous treaty, nearly uh, as well known as the two row, which is the dish with one spoon. This was an agreement between the. Uh, aforementioned Horonashani and the Anishinaabe, uh, and and graphically it's a belt of white beads with a purple lozenge in the center representing a bowl or a dish, and it, the treaty is recognizing uh, that a number of distinct nations live in the dish and have obligations to ensure it never runs empty. So this has, um, this has encouraged distinct political communities to share the same territory in peace. 
Um, a terrain is not mapped by exclusive sovereignty, but by mutual obligations. It's a very different understanding of sovereignty from the one that we inherited from Europe. Uh, so mutual obligations. In fact, you could argue that it's actually the perfect thing we need uh, to survive the uh, climate apocalypse. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, about the dish with one spoon, I should say that, um, you know, there's a recognition that, that non-human communities matter in diplomacy. Uh, and it's limited, or diplomacy is limited by an acknowledgement of a, of a, of a world, world that has rules. And it articulates political community that limits human exploitation of the land and, and environment encouraging life in balance, which is really interesting. And, and so this piece by uh, Hayden King, it's, it's from a chapter in a book to which I also contributed with a, with a co-author, um, gives, um, uh, gives you a very good critique of orthodox uh, international relations, theoretical and practical uh, exclusions, uh, right? And it's, it, it has both theoretical implications for IR, but also political exp- uh, implications for Canada. He says, you know, next time, a blockade happens, or you read about it in the news, um, the media will struggle to explain it. Uh, but, you know, Wet'suwet'en or Inu blockade will likely be acting on political, legal, spiritual obligations to the land. And, and the blockade itself is an exercise of diplomacy. So, there you have it. Um, three very different stories, uh, two kind of legalistic, one uh, diplomatic but also political, uh, lots of food for thought for you to react to in the discussion forum and on the blog. So I very much look forward to your um, um, to your thoughts. Thank you for listening, and until the next week.